All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for uh, joining us today. We have our special guest, William Fink from Christogenia.org, um, visiting us again. This is our third chat with him. Um, our second chat was uh, really popular. Um, on my BitChute, uh, we have almost 1,800 views, which is really good for BitChute. And a lot of people were asking uh, if we could have him on again. You know, when are we going to? So I know a lot of people are going to be really happy. We have them on, and um, Truthvids just did a um, a video he's been working really hard on for a long time called 100 Proofs the uh, Israelites Were White, and we thought we would discuss that. Um, and then also um, Scotland Sean is joining us. So uh, Dennis Weiss um, said he would be joining us too, so hopefully he'll pop in too sometime uh, in here. But... Um, Bill, anything you want to want to share before we get started? Want to say hi to everybody? Well, well, yeah. I mean, hello, everybody. But I, I'm kind of sad. I, I haven't had the time to get, and, and I feel apologetic. I noticed a lot of comments and a couple of comment threads that I've been trying to get back to on some of those Bible basics and the other things we've done. I just haven't had a chance to get back to them, but I will. That There's a couple of naysayers in there that think they got me. I'll get them. I'll, I'll catch them. <laughs> they don't have me. <laughs> they don't. They don't have you, Bill. They definitely don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I just thought I'd say that. I I, I don't want to um, disregard your audience after doing so many programs, but I'll get there. Right on. Um, yeah. So, Truthfit, do you want to um, do you want to start off going through the list and? Um, yeah, sure. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say um, the whole point of the video was just to do something for CI in video form. I know that uh, Bill and Clifton have already done so much amazing work, uh, especially like with their websites or the articles or the podcasts. And, you know, there are some great books out there, not just from Bill and Clifton, but, you know, like uh, E. Raymond Capps books. Uh, Sharon Turner's done a few and there's many more. And I just wanted to put something out there on YouTube. So I thought if there's one thing CI was lacking, it's just some kind of video on YouTube that hopefully people could spread and it would bring people to Chrysogenia and the truth, you know, and a lot of Bill's work. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you did a really good job on that. And and you did it in a way, too, that is, I think, um, uh, politically correct, you know, like, you know. The yeah, I tried not to make it, you know, like a hateful video, a bash video. It was just straight to the point. Um, the Israelites were white. The modern Europeans are their descendants. And that's basically it. That's all I wanted to prove in that video. And that's, I did slip yeah. in like a lot of other teachings, uh, mostly, you know, what from Bill uh, listening to his podcast and provide little details here and there, hopefully to get people thinking and, wanting to research and look it up for themselves, you know? Yeah, well, you did a really good job. Let, let me say something. Um, I, I don't want to take the wind out of truth vid sales. Not at all. I, I'd rather wind them up and watch them go. And, and I think that the 100 Proofs video is very good. It's very well done. It's very well presented. And I like the video. So I'm not going to knock it, but a lot of the material in the 100 proofs are idealistic, but I'm a pragmatist. 
I'm personally a pragmatist. I search for empirical evidence to support my assertions. And I've always chosen to leave the idealism to others. So I don't know that I'm a good mix with the 100 proofs video, right? And, and that's a caveat. So you won't find a lot of these proofs mentioned at Christogenia unless they're found in one of the Christogenia sites that contain the writings of Swift or Compare or even Clifton. But I do understand that there are many things in history which can be considered signs of a fulfillment, even if they're not really a proof. So I do not mock that ever unless they go overboard. I've seen some things brought into Christian identity that are way overboard. But a lot of those things that are signs of a fulfillment or may be interpreted as signs of a fulfillment aren't necessarily proofs. And generally, they can only be agreed upon among those of us who already believe what proofs that we do have of our Christian identity. So some of those things that are only signs, that I see only as signs of a fulfillment, um, whether or not they truly are in God's eyes, they often are in the eyes of man, and they can be useful for introducing new people to Christian identity. But because they cannot be proven empirically, they can also be useful to those who are contrary to our message and want to disprove it or want to show that we're just quacks or, or we're not right about what we proofs we do present. So it's a two-edged sword. Do you want to um, go over any of those that you well, have well, issue can, with or, we can or go should we over just what, go through them? We can go whatever truth vids over what ever truth vids wants to go over but the um I, i'll i'll say the um well, well i'll just let truth vids pick it up and see where he wants to go but... <laughs> i really don't mind um i there were a lot of proofs i considered and i like deliberately held back you know like uh i've, I've heard you mention before on podcast how others have tried to link countries to you know certain tribes like France is Reuben and Spain is Simeon, etc., etc. And I, I did consider that, but I just thought, you know, maybe that's not the best route to go. I only stuck to the three main ones um, Britain being Ephraim, America, Manasseh, and Dan being Denmark, as I thought there was some very good supporting evidence. As for the others, you know, there probably are lots of little bits of information that you could probably link, but I thought it's best, unless there's concrete evidence. You know, just not to uh, mention those ones. Well, okay. Let me address that real quick. Sure. I could unplug the Simeon is Spain thing really quick because in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob says that Simeon will be scattered among his breast, uh, amongst his brethren. Simeon and Levi would be scattered amongst the, the tribes of their brethren. Now, that worked for Levi in the inheritance of the Levitical priesthood, but it can't really be seen in Simeon. So if Simeon was to be scattered amongst his brethren, then he can't have his own distinct nation, according to the prophecy in Genesis. So let's unplug that real quick.
<laughs> yeah, sure. Anybody that says Simeon is vain is is making a profession that's contrary to what was said about Simeon. That's the way I see it. It, it says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel in reference to Simeon and Levi, Genesis chapter 49, verse 7. So I, I don't, it, it does seem that Ephraim and Manasseh, um, there are supporting statements in prophecy that would indicate to us that perhaps they are the United States and Great Britain. Which one is which is arguable. It's, it's, it's arguable, actually. A company of nations. Well, the United States is a company of nations. And the British Israel people would say, well, the English Commonwealth is a company of nations. Okay, so we, do we argue over that? Probably not. Dan being Denmark, which is actually a mark in, in um, older European language, is simply a frontier. So it would be frontier of Dan. And that is plausible. It makes sense. Is there a definite connection there? Um, it, it's hard to prove something like that in history. The fact that this word Dan had gone wherever they are is an indication that it could very well be true. For instance, Sardinia. Sardinia is Shardana in ancient inscriptions. And I could prove that Shardana means remnant of Dan in Hebrew. So, yeah, that makes sense because the Danans had left Egypt and gone to the Peloponnesus and settled there. They all didn't go to the same place. They were seagoing people. So it's obvious some of them very well could have settled in the island that became known as Shardana, meaning remnant or remainder of Dan. So Denmark makes better sense than most of the other connections to Israelite tribes and European nations, because those nations are really only um, geopolitical entities that were formed out of the union of various ancient principalities that were settled in ancient times by diverse tribes, uh, whether they were Phoenician or, or what we call proto-Celts, I identify as the Phoenicians, or the later Galatahi, or the even later waves of Kimri and, and Saxons that came into Europe. Yet, you know, most of, most of those principalities consisted of one or more or any combination of those various waves of people. If, oh, if can you, I interject real quick? Sure. Um, Bill, so um, you know how like when people do a DNA test and um, like, you know, you check your European heritage and it does show different DNA, though, from, you know, like it, it'll come up like Wales, Scotland, Ireland will be one and then uh, England will be separate. And then like Germany, you know, Germany and France, uh, they, they usually have them together. So could that be how the tribes are, do you think? Or... You well, know, because well, like Scandinavia is another DNA. Not, not necessarily because you, you, you would expect um, Manasseh and Ephraim and 
Benjamin all to have identical DNA if they truly came from Jacob's sons with Rachel. Yeah, America is definitely, um, you know, uh, probably the most mixed to European country, you know, uh, ancestry. Right. The truth is that we don't know enough about DNA and that I don't believe half the bullshit that comes out of the so-called scientists about DNA. I just don't. Especially when they, <laughs> these DNA companies, the identical twins get tested and come back with different ancient <laughs> heritages. <laughs> exactly. It, I know it, they put uh, like Jewish DNA. They'll, you know, if a white person um, does a DNA test, if they have like a um, English name or something, they'll make sure it has like Jew in it or um, or some black or some Asian. You know, yeah. they always throw a little bit in a pinch. Everyone's one percent black. According yeah. To well, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> okay. I teach um, racial purity is an absolute necessity. And the one drop rule, if, if you're a bastard, if you have one non-white ancestor, you're a bastard. That's just the way it is. And people have challenged me to get a DNA test, and I refuse to because I am not going to put my opinion of myself into the hands of a devil. It's not going to happen. If I get a DNA test, I'm turning over my um, opinion of myself or who I believe I am into the hands of some Jew. That's crazy. Who would do that? That's nuts. In the name of science? Bullshit. That's not science. That DNA testing is very, very far from being an empirical science. So... People will say to me, because I teach the absolute necessity of 100% racial purity, they'll say to me, what if you're a bastard? What if you're mixed? And my answer is, what does that matter? The truth is empirical. It's not relative. If I'm mixed, I could still recognize that truth, period. So it doesn't yeah, matter. And even and, and like Hitler, um, you know, during his time, um, they would just go back through his uh, documentation, right, for his ancestors. I mean, w there wasn't anything with the DNA test back then. I think that's the best way is go back through uh, your family tree, you know, the documents and stuff like that to see. Well, right. Well, once you get back, you, you know, this race mixing thing is really pretty new. I mean, it always happened in the metropolitan areas, especially in the port cities where you had a lot of prostitution and a lot of intercourse between people of different nations. But for the most part, our people have always been very tribal, have always taken wives of their own local um, tribesmen or clansmen and that's in, in Germany all the way up through the um, into the 20th century you were expected to take a wife of, of a girl somewhere in your village or, or in your little hamlet you didn't um, meet people of other races with, with any degree of frequency most Europeans 
lived their entire lives and died and never saw anybody of another race. Any race mixing that went on was between warring nations that took each other's women as booty. And, and yeah, that happened a lot. But in Europe, usually that was just between other European nations. So, I mean, in, in Central Europe, anyway, you had the, the Turks come into Austria a few times, and you had the, the Saracens in Spain, and, and they're all unique situations. But in Germany and Britain and Scandinavia, it was not like that. And race mixing just didn't happen with any regularity. So... If you could get back in your genealogy so far and, and associate yourself with the people of a certain European region or nation or tribe, then you could be pretty confident that you could determine who you are. And Dennis might... just popped in the chat, by the way. Hey, Dennis. Hello. Hi, Dennis. Hey, Dennis. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're, you're a bit low. A bit yeah. low. That low. <laughs> so to me, these DNA companies are really just they're really just deceiving people about who they are because their their technology is not that good. It's just not. And we don't have a long enough history of the propagation of DNA amongst Europeans in order to determine the reasons for differences such as R1A and R1B haplotypes. When people have two different haplotypes or groups have two different haplotypes that are apparently of the same race. That being said, the best way to determine that you're not white is probably if you bear certain haplotypes that are just known not to be white. So you might be able to to understand your identification through that but that's still a very general understanding and it's not going to tell us Sorry. specifically who you are if you're r1a that doesn't mean that you're definitely white you could you, you could just have had a a white maternal ancestor that it was passed down through yeah. the haplotype but whether it's the mitochondrial dna or the paternal dna is another matter so i tried to um go on the internet and uh find a video or pictures of actual dna you know um to see how like how they look at it under a, a microscope you think there would be something out there and i can't find anything you think that you'd be able to find something showing how they process um, a sample, you know, to see what the DNA uh, reveals, you know? But there, I don't, I couldn't find anything. So well, well, that I makes mean, me suspicious. We, we would probably have to find like a molecular molecular biologist or something. I, I never met one, so. <laughs> yeah, and if we did meet one, I'd like them to make a video and show us how they do it, you know? Because we're all just believing that it's it's true, you know, but we can't actually see it. We can't do it ourselves, and we can't even see the process. Well, right, but I don't believe that it's true. They, they even gauge um, DNA ancestry based on current populations. So it, if they'll 
tell you that you're part Syrian and and that means that you're basically a sand nigger, that, that you're not white at all. And a lot of people think, well, I'm part Syrian. Well, the Syrians were white. Well, yeah, but that's not how the DNA companies think. They'll tell you you're part Syrian because you're possibly part Arab. So, so they base um, the origins of people based upon the structure of the current populations of those regions. And that's not, that's not accurate. Yeah, and they even have um, a disclaimer that says um, anything um, below 50%, um, they can't um, guarantee, you know, so if you, if it says, you know, you're 20%, I don't know what, you know, black or something, they could just be throwing that in there because they, they don't guarantee it at all, you know, so I, th I think they have an agenda that they throw things in there so that, uh, everybody's a mutt basically that's what they want they want everyone to think they're a mutt so just go along with their agenda their new world order agenda you know well i have a friend and he's he's a um fellow league of the south member and his last name is a spanish last name his grandfather was a spaniard that came and settled the south and if he told you that he was irish you wouldn't you wouldn't think twice about it because he looks Irish. He doesn't look like a like a speck. He's definitely not a Puerto Rican or a Cuban. So he he's kind of blonde and very fair skinned and has fair eyes, light colored eyes. I don't remember what color, but they're light colored. So he sends off for his DNA kit, twenty three and Me. And it comes back that he is 20% Sub-Saharan African and 40% East African. So they're saying basically <laughs> that this white guy is 60% nigger. <laughs> what wow. the hell? Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. That's crazy. <laughs> and this just happened within the last month or so. He posted his results on Facebook. He didn't, he wasn't ashamed of it because when you look at the guy, it's like, what the hell are they talking about? He should do another um, company and just see what they, what results they give him, well, you know, try another one. I'm sorry. We've really gotten off the um, hundred proofs with this DNA thing, but I, I would advise anybody not to waste their damn money. Keep your money. Give it to a white man that's homeless in the street. Don't give it to those Jews that running 23andMe. Definitely. Did, did the um, tribes not mix, Bill? Uh, you know, in the old original kingdom, would, you know, the, the area of, say, Benjamin or the area of Judah, would they generally just only marry of their own tribe? Was there not mixing well, between the tribes going on? There must have been some mixing in the tribes, especially when they begin to migrate outside of ancient Israel. But in the kingdom, it's evident in the Old Testament that they very closely guarded their land inheritances and discouraged intertribal mixing for that reason, because they wanted to keep their land in their own tribe. Yeah, yeah, right. 
What about uh, Benjamin, Bill? You know how it, it says um, that Benjamin has, um, it says something about Manasseh and Ephraim or the shoulders of Benjamin or some, it, it resides between the shoulders. Is that Iceland, do you think, or do you, or is that not? You, you see, that that's a common British-Israel association that I won't make. Oh, <laughs> okay. I won't make it. You won't get me to say that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the um, Okay. So the you think that's not necessarily um Iceland then? No, I don't. Okay. Yeah, it's Iceland. a tiny country as well, isn't it? It's only got a population of a few million, hasn't it? What well, wasn't Iceland I, I mean the first inhabitants of Iceland were Irishmen. Yeah. Um Irish Norsemen, wasn't it? Were, well, well, I think it was the Irish who were trying to escape the incursions of the Norsemen, and then the Norsemen followed them. I, I think that's how it went. So, yeah, you have a, a, a mixture of races in Iceland, unless the Norsemen wiped out the Irish there. Yeah. I really so, doubt- I, and. I really doubt if any of the nations or or even the tribes in the post-captivity era or in the Phoenician settlement era were all of one tribe. I really doubt it. Yeah, I imagine every country would have a mix of the tribes. Is it not possible that some would have a predominance of perhaps one tribe, even though like the whole country would be a complete mixture. I think that's possible in certain cases. Look at Switzerland though. Switzerland. Oh yeah. It they don't even have their own language today. Frankish cantons and Italian cantons and it's all broke up. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dennis, have you sorted your mic out now? I guess not. Hello. Oh, hey, Dennis. Yeah, I've, I've sorted. Sorry, I, I, I was just, I was just uh, listening to the conversation. I'm quite happy to be on the, on the back seat on this one. But <clears throat> there were some comments on on BitChute I was trying to look for, which uh, you know I, I could have asked to uh, if it could be argued or not. But, uh, yeah, you just caught me on the up then. <laughs> Hello, okay. Dennis. It's good to see you again. How are you doing, sir? I haven't spoke to you since our last, um, since that one interview we had. Perhaps we should do Always good to be in the same room. Well, <laughs> I appreciate it, and, and I love and respect your work, and I think it's an honor, too. Vice versa, all the way. If, if you want to start going through some of these 100 proofs, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to naysay them all, but I do have some issues that I would like to raise. And, and sure. it, it's because I'm pragmatic. And, and I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to disparage your work. And this is an excellent presentation. But let me start with this this meaning of the name Saxons. I was just going to bring that up because I know that's one that a lot of people are a bit... No, I don't know about that one. Well, well Herodotus and um, even Pliny, although Pliny expressed some confusion on the matter from ancient writings, Herodotus equated the Saka with the Scythians. And the ancient Persian inscriptions 
all the way back to the time of Xerxes, which are often written in multiple languages, Farsi, which is Persian, and Elamite, and which Elamite, the, the nation of Elam in the Bible, were the primary component of the Persian people. And then you had Farsi, and, and then you had Akkadian, which was still being used, and inscriptions were still being made in the Persian period in Akkadian. And then, of course, you had Aramaic, which became ultimately supplanted Akkadian as the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy. So, so in the Persian inscriptions, wherever the Akkadian, which is the language of the Assyrians, right? Wherever the Akkadian has Qumri or Kimmerians, the Elamite and the Farsi versions have Saka. So we see that Saka is a Persian word for the Qumri or Kimmerians, who were also known as Scythians, right? So Saka is a Persian word, but in Hebrew, the word for Isaac is spelled sort of like, because Hebrew only had consonantal letters, Y-T-S-C-H-K. Y-T-S-C-H-K is nothing like Saka. Now, that may be transliterated as, transliterated as Y-S-H-K, because that T-S could be an S or sometimes a Z in transliteration. It could also be Y-Z-H-K. The C-H could be guttural or it could be smoother like an H in transliteration. So Y-Z-H-K or Y-S-H-K in Hebrew still isn't really like Saka in Persian or in English. So that's why I'm skeptical of a direct connection between the word Saka and the word Isaac. I see that more like an... It, it's more like a coincidence that's convenient, which can help us see the fulfillment of the prophecy, but it's not necessarily correct. The explanation of Sakasune being sons of the Saka is what was made by, I, I believe that was first made by Sharon Turner in his um, History of the Anglo-Saxons, which I actually have that book and I've actually read it. And Sharon Turner never connected the Saka to Isaac. That was not his realm. The British Israel people did that later. But Sharon Turner was only a historian who didn't try to interpret his history um, in, in the lens of biblical prophecy. He only wrote about history very pragmatically. So he made the connection that Sakasune means sons of the Saka or the race of the Saka. So he also believed and attempted to establish or prove that that is the etymology of the word Saxon. Now, I agree with all that, but to 
connect that word Saka to the English word Isaac. In order to do that, I would need better proof that Saka can be connected to this Hebrew word Y-S-H-K, right? <laughs> or or that, that could be... Um, that could be pronounced, that could be alliterated in, in many different ways in Hebrew because we don't really know where the ancient Hebrews stuck the vowels. And I really don't like any of the modern Hebrew pronunciations. They're all Yiddish to me. So <laughs> however you want to pr pronounce Y-S-H-K, that's fine. But th they actually the rendering of Isaac was the choice of medieval translators of scripture into English. So you don't think it could be pronounced Isaac or anything similar like that? Y-S-H-K. Ishak. Isaac. It's possible. But I'm well, not saying... I, I would like a, a more solid connection in Persian literature that's very, very difficult to obtain. I don't think it can be obtained. Well, um, often you'll find that when people have names, um, you know, especially in war times, that they'll hear the name and then they will write it down how they think it will be spelled. If you get what I mean, like, you know, that's why you have so many different variations of surnames, uh, you know, especially all across the countries. Well, well, I, I do understand how, how, I mean, I've written articles on this with certain names, how, how a name can evolve from one language to another. I do understand yeah. that. But I would need um, a more definite connection because we have to ask ourselves, did the Persians know the Israelites as the descendants of a man named Isaac? Did they? Because that's what's necessary. Because Saka is not a a um a Hebrew identification for these people. So, are there not some Assyrian uh, inscriptions? Sorry, I, I should have like researched this, you know, to bring them up. But weren't there some that had Beth Sack, as in House of Sack? Have you come across any of like that? I can't say that I remember one. Okay. I really can't. I, I would have And to in go. terms of being called the Israelites, if if I'm correct, does that not mean to rule with God? You know, the, the word uh, Israel or Israelites. That is the defin that is the definition that Strong's concordance applied to the word. He that will rule with God. It is often sometimes translated as God rules or God prevails. In any case, it, it's, um, it would fit the definition of, of the name as being prophetic of the yeah. destiny of the people. But once they were divorced and, you know, dispersed, they, uh, it'd be hard to call yourself he who rules with God. Would, well, would you... Perhaps well, right, agree with but, that, that they might have a different name or go by a different name? Well, if we interpret it as God rules or God prevails, we see the fulfillment of the prophecies 
in the people of Israel, even in spite of the people themselves. So God prevails. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Because right from the get-go, I, I mean, Yahweh God chose this particular people for a particular destiny, and they were disobedient right from the beginning. That, that their disobedience resisted their destiny. And they will achieve it anyway because God prevails. Yeah. The, the other things that I've come across a lot, though, is people bring up that there are certain verses where uh, Yahweh ref speaks of the Israel Israelites as the house of Isaac. Or, for example, um, you know, Amos 7, 9 is slightly different. Sorry. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. So, so it's interesting that he refers to it as the places of Isaac there. And people, you know, in the commentaries I've read, they've said, well, that's where um, Yahweh began to call them Beth Isaac, Beth Isaac, the house of Isaac, instead of the children of Israel. Well, well that only appears in Amos. It only appears in Amos chapter 7, the phrase house of Isaac. Amos is a prophet of the same time that the Assyrians were already coming and deporting the children of Israel in, into the cities of the north, right? In the days of yeah. um, Jeroboam II and Uzziah, the king of Judah. So that's rather late in the history of Israel. And we can't imagine that the Israelites themselves immediately adopted that language from Amos as soon as they were being deported. It, I would be more convinced of it if there were more references to the house of Isaac throughout the earlier scriptures. So that I would know that the people used that term themselves, but I'm not convinced of that. Okay. I'm a skeptic. I, I, I mean, I, I like to look at everything, and if I could prove it, then I'll write about it. But if I can't prove it, I just set it on a back burner. So to me, this is a back burner issue that I really can't prove, so I don't write about it. It can be that the assertion can be attacked by our adversaries, and that might yeah, you know, it, it, it's like I said, it's idealistic and it certainly can be a sign of the fulfillment of prophecy in these people. Because we know from many other empirical sources that these are the people. So it's idealistic and it could be a sign. The, the coincidence, if it is a coincidence, can be a sign that the prophecy is fulfilled. But I wouldn't call it a proof. Because I'm pragmatic. I can't help you what I am. <laughs> okay. So, but may maybe for a proof, if we just changed it to Sons of Saka for the Saxons, would work. Well, well yeah, but I, I mean, I know Truthvids is seeking that connection to scriptural prophecy. There are plenty of connections to prophecy and, and the Saka or, or Kimroy or whatever. But 
I don't believe that this is one that can be proven. So even though it's so obvious, it is obvious. I mean, it does stick in your mind and it it is attractive. Yeah, that was mostly the point, you know, just to when people go away, they, they have all these thoughts and like that one would stick out. You know, yes, we are the sons of Isaac. We can move on. Uh, I mean, well, yeah, sure. at this rate, we're going to need a hundred programs to talk about. <laughs> all right. Uh, did, did you have another one or do you want me to just go through the list? Was there any like that really stuck out that you thought, well, I don't know about that one? Well, well, you know, the Ten Commandments, the fact that we bear and, and have generally obeyed the Ten Commandments and codified them into our legislation at one time, not anymore. We had all the moral precepts in the law, not only the Ten Commandments, but many more, um, like prohibitions of sodomy and, and things like that, codified into our law throughout our entire history as a Christian people. We 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 had a lot of these prohibitions already ingrained into our culture, probably through cultural acclimation from our ancient Hebrew ancestors long before we, we received the gospel of Christ. So we've always generally kept or sought to keep these commandments. We've always had them codified into our law, and that is a serious proof that we are the people of God, at least to me, because the the Old Testament said that we would do that. And we did. Yeah, it, even against like usury and, you know, little things like that, it was always part, part of our law. Right. Usury was, was even forbidden in, in the Roman Catholic Church until... Um, until the time of the De Medici's and Pope Leo X. Yep. The, the prohibitions against usury have always been part of English common law and and Christians and usury. Yet, you know, in America, in, in early New England, usury was forbidden and it was Cotton Mather that unplugged that. It was Cotton Mather. That's why he's famous today. He's not famous for doing anything that we know about. He's famous for doing the things that aren't generally known. And, and one of those things is that he opened the doors for the Jewish merchants to get their claws into New England by convincing all of the other Puritan ministers that they should start accepting usury for the benefit of trade. And, and it's, I'm sure that the Jews made him famous for that, but without admitting that. That's my opinion, anyway, of, of how things work. Yeah, they like, like, they like to reward their shields often. Yeah, he should like, have been demonized. Famous. He should be demonized. So I guess the American flags, 13 stripes, <laughs> what did you think of that one? Yeah, you know... E. Raymond Capt loved that. E. Raymond Capt loved taking all of the symbols of America and turning them into Israel symbols. And once again, that might be a sign of the fulfillment of prophecy, but the 13 stripes simply come from the 13 American colonies. And that to me is another 
um, fortunate coincidence. That's all it is. Right. And um, to be known as Christians, that certainly is the prophecy, right? That yes, we would be that, known by the sons of the living God. Well, well, right. That That is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's not a direct biblical prophecy because the word Christian and the word Christ do not appear in the Old Testament. But the, his people would be called by his name which he himself would name. Christ said, I am the Christ. So his people were called Christians ever since the, um, the Christian community in Antioch in the book of Acts had first used the term in reference to themselves. And, and they were also white and descended from Israelites for the most part. So, so the, um, that's in Acts chapter 11. And we've adopted that term Christians ever since. And that Christendom described, Christendom was the word that described medieval white European, Europe. Medieval white Europe as a whole was described as Christendom, was called Christendom for many, many centuries. And that's yeah, even facts were identified Old, as Christians. Yes, and that's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that his people would be called by a by a new name which he himself would name. He named that name for himself during his earthly ministry. So one of the um things that often come up with the, you know, Christ sent the apostles to the lost tribes of Europe, people always bring up these old myths like Thomas went to India, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You think that's uh, nonsense? I think they're all nonsense. We don't know anything real and tangible about any of the apostles after the book of Acts. There's very little mention of the fates of the apostles in any of the earliest Christian writings. Um, some of the myths start to appear in the writings of Eusebius, but even he doesn't say a whole lot about the fate of the apostles, except in relation to um, a couple of churches in Mesopotamia. So th there's, I, I mean, I, I'm familiar with George Jowett's drama of the lost disciples, but I, I was going to ask you that one. Yeah. To do me, you believe any of that's true? To me, that's a novel. It's a novel. It's a novel, man. That's all it is. I see that as a novel. In um, medieval times, different churches wanted to claim a special heritage and connection with various apostles. And to me, that's when most of those myths were created. They're just myths. Yeah, every church wanted to be the original oldest church. Or, or at least one of them. That they wanted to be an, an, an original apostolic church. They wanted to claim that they had the inheritance from the apostles. And and even it I, I believe that even a lot of the 
a lot of the statements about Peter being founding the the, the Church of Rome and and being the first pope, that, that's also a myth. That's a Roman Catholic myth. That's not true. Peter wasn't the first pope. Peter was in Babylon until after the death of Paul. His letters state that he was in Babylon. Now, I've even seen some apologists for the Catholic Church say, oh, Babylon's a code word for Rome in the epistle of Peter. But then you take them to the Revelation, and they'll deny the same exact association. Oh, no, that's not talking about Rome. <laughs> They'll deny it. <laughs> so, so Peter was in Babylon in Mesopotamia. Why? Because of that, Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. And there was still a lot of Judah and Israel who maintained a lot of the ancient Hebrew customs in Babylon and Mesopotamia in the first century. There still were. So Peter, the apostle to the circumcision, and it was dangerous for him to stay in Judea, so he went to Babylon to be the apostle to the circumcision. And that's what he says in his first epistle, and I accept that as being literally true. That the, um, the fates of the other apostles, that they're not told us, even in the book of Acts. Luke never mentions any of the apostles after perhaps Acts chapter 15 and up to Acts chapter 15, I think he only mentions James. He does mention James in Acts chapter 20, but Peter and John are only mentioned up to Acts chapter 15. And Luke sort of indicates, without naming them, in Acts chapter 15 that the apostles are all still in Jerusalem with James, and James is their elder. That's the picture Luke draws. Yeah. Later on, so, so, um, in that book, it claimed that was it Galatia what meant to mean France or Gaul? You think that's just nonsense? That is absolute nonsense. Galatia was the land of the Galatahi who had crossed back into Anatolia in the second century BC and had warred against the Italic kingdom and lost, but they put up such a fierce fight that the king of that the the king had given them the ancient land of Phrygia, which then became known as Galatia after the Galatahi. And Paul traveled through Galatia in the book of Acts, and he did so several times, and he got there by walking from, from Calicia and around Pamphylia and through Galatia and down into Asia, which is where Ephesus is. So, so that was how Paul traveled. So you can't get from Calicia to France and end up in Asia. It don't work. So yeah, that's <laughs> nonsense. There is a direct... Um, kindred relationship between the Galatahi of Anatolia and the Gauls of France, the Galatahi of France. They are the same people. But they didn't all stay, they didn't all migrate in the same direction in the 5th century BC when they started to migrate down the Danube River Valley from Asia. Yeah. 
So the um, the Abrahamic covenant, where there'd be many kings, many nations, that easily proves that the Jews are not the Israelites. But, um, you know, other races like the black Hebrews will always try and claim it's them. But do you think that alone just proves that uh, the Europeans are the true Israelites? Well, well, it doesn't prove it by itself, but it certainly does prove it. It, it's, yeah. it certainly is a solid proof. Look for a certain people who became many nations in the time frame from 700 BC when the Assyrians first take the Israelites into captivity to um, 100 AD and the beginning of the spread of the gospel. That's what you have to look for. When Abraham was made those promises, there was no England. There was no Britain. Yeah, there were um, small settlements, but those inhabitants in those small settlements are not the people who made um, Britain later on in history because we have a clear and a clear record that we can gather from historical documents and from archaeology of all of the incursions into Britain and Ireland. So we know that the people in those 5,000-year-old settlements or 10,000-year-old settlements, they might be predecessors, but they're not our ancestors. There's a big difference. And archaeologists love to find predecessors and make the claim that they're ancestors, and that's not true. Yeah, there's some inhabitants in, in central Germany, central Europe, that might be 10 or 20,000 years old, but it's not us. We have a clear historic record and archaeological record of where our ancestors came from, and they came from the Levant and Mesopotamia. That's where they came from. Yeah. So we so have to look for, um, Paul said in, in Romans chapter 4 that, God calls things not existing as existing because he knows that they are going to come into existence. When Abraham was given those promises, there were no Galatians, there were no Romans, there were no there were no Greeks except for the Ionians. The Ionians. Wherever you look in, in the Old Testament and it says Greek, the Hebrew word is Javan, that's one tribe that were later known as Greeks, called the Ionians. But historic, historic ancient Greece was actually comprised of many different tribes. And Greek was only, or Hellene, was only a label for their general language and culture. It didn't have anything to do with their race. They were all different tribes. The Dorians, the Danans, all came well after the time of Abraham. We have to look for nations that were established in between the promise to Abraham and the dispersions of Israel and the time of Christ. And that describes the Germanic nations and proto-Celtic nations of Europe. Yep. So um, in terms of Jesus' or Yeshua's appearance, 
obviously that's one of the most contested ones they always try and claim he was uh you know dark-skinned arab or negro um obviously i included like a lot of the you know old letters which are perhaps a bit dubious do you think any of them can be used as evidence the the old letters and and i'm pragmatic about them too to me they were probably forgeries of the early mediterranean churches whether they were italian churches or greek churches i don't know i don't believe that they're authentic but they date they do date to the fourth and fifth centuries a.d so they do describe what people of the fourth and fifth centuries a.d thought of that christ would look like better than that what about all of the um all of the mosaics and other works of art that are early Christian works of art that date back to the second and third centuries AD that clearly depict that the Judeans were white. They're much more significant than those, um, than those letters from the fifth century. Yeah, and they're even pretty consistent, especially with um, the appearance of the apostles. Have you noted that? Noticed that how like Peter and Paul they tend to always look generally the same, or do you think that's just how they imagined they would look like? We we um we can't. I, I imagine the apostles looked very Roman. Jesus didn't have long hair and a long beard. In fact, Paul of Tarsus wrote. That that it was a um, a sin for a man to have long hair. It it wasn't, and and by sin he didn't necessarily mean a sin against the laws of God, but an error because that's what the word means in Greek. It was a sin for a man to have long hair because the Romans would think that he was trying to be a woman. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> they think he was a tranny. The Roman men had short hair, and at the time of Christ, they shaved their beards. I don't imagine the apostles to have looked any differently. Okay. So, um, America, Christian nation, when it was founded, uh, this this one I actually got from listening to some of your really old podcasts on, you know, the early American days. But um, generally, any European country that was set up, it always started as a European country. That's pretty amazing when you consider, um, you know, no other nation of all the other races has ever been European. We always had to forcefully convert them. Well, well right. And, and th this is actually amazing that people don't see this. But before we start on this, I, I want to say that those mosaics that I had in mind that are foremost, come from Sephoris, S-E-P-P-H-O-R-I-S. There are others that are just as good in other towns around Galilee, but the, the mosaics of Sephoris are actually quite old and depict Judeans as being entirely white. There's no brown people in these mosaics. Now to get onto your other topic. I'm sorry about the digression. That's fine. I was hoping you'd summarize it. Oh, right. The, um, in terms of new nations, 
all white nations that came from Europe always started off as Christian. And um, every other nation uh, for the other races, we always had to forcefully convert them to well, Christianity. Well, right. They never now, just would, willingly accepted it. I wouldn't say that the new white nations started off as Christian, um, that they were mostly pagan, but the ancient Israelites were pagans. That's why they were put into captivity by God, because they were practicing paganism, not because they were Christian. But it only took one generation of apostles. One generation is all we have record of. And after one generation of apostles, the whites of Anatolia, many of them adopted Christianity. The whites of Greece, many of them adopted Christianity. The white people in Italy and Rome, many of them adopted Christianity. The white people in Gaul, modern France, many of them adopted Christianity, and the white people in Britain, many of them adopted Christianity. One generation, one wave of apostles planted the Christian religion in across Europe, and it persisted and became the dominating religion of all those regions before Rome officially accepted Christianity. One wave of apostles and the Goths, many of the Goths accepted Christianity. And, and the Goths that came into Europe were Aryan Christians. A lot of the Goths and a lot of the Huns, and the Huns have a bad, a bad rap that they don't deserve, were Aryan Christians in the Byzantine armies that were Catholic Christians. It may not have been the ideal form of Christianity, but it was still Christianity. One yeah. wave of apostles. That's all it took to make Europe Christian. Now, the process took centuries, but it happened without any further interference from the Jews. And in fact, the Jews together with Roman pagan emperors, did everything they could to prevent it, to stamp out Christianity, and they couldn't do it. They killed thousands and thousands of martyrs, and they couldn't do it. Pliny the Younger, the letters of Pliny the Younger, they are legitimate. And around 110 AD in Bithynia, he, he was the proconsul or whatever his office was in Bithynia. And he wrote back to the emperor that there were so many Christians, he was afraid he was going to have to, um, to, to execute thousands of them to stamp out Christianity in Bithynia. They wanted to stamp out Christianity, and they couldn't do it. No matter how many people they killed, they couldn't do it. Yeah. And that never happened in the, you know, non-white countries. Never. That never happened in non-white countries. People like to point at China today and talk about how Chinese Christians are being persecuted. And that might be true <laughs> to a degree. But Christianity has never persisted in any non-white country without constant attention and intervention from white missionaries 
Yeah. Um, in terms of countries, sorry, I meant more, um, you know, modern ones like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, America. Uh, what, what, everything you said I included in the video, but um, that they were founded as Christian and America especially it had no king ruling over it. So it was just like a republic similar to the, um, you know, Joshua days when we had the judges. Well, you know, Thomas Paine wrote that America didn't need a king, that the law, the law was king. That's what Thomas Paine wrote. Everybody says, oh, he's a deist. He, he wasn't really a Christian. And these men didn't wear their Christianity on their shirt sleeves like today's Judeo-Christians do. But that don't mean they weren't Christians. Thomas Paine said the law was king. And by that, he meant the law of the God of the Old Testament and the commandments of Christ were king. Yeah. Okay, so um, with the Fertile Crescent now being a barren waste, you know, desert, and many of the countries that we founded, you know, it took us quite a while, but we managed to transform them, especially like South Africa, Australia, you know, you go to Canada, uh, the Siberia in Russia, you know, we've all somehow managed to build a civilization out of nothing. And none of the other races have ever been able to do that. Surely that can only be by following God's laws and him blessing us. Well, well, you know, at one time, even Arabia was predominantly white. And the it, it was mixed white tribes, for which reason it was called Arabia, along with Canaanite tribes, which were originally white. They were just inbred until they started to mix with the Rephaim and the Kenites. But they still appeared to be white that most people would call them white today, even if we know that they're not entirely Adamic. So, Arabia by the Romans was called Felix Arabia, which means blessed or happy Arabia. And the Greeks built the Decapolis there, 10 cities in Arabia. The Romans wanted settlements there. They wanted to inhabit it. Nobody wants to inhabit a hellhole a desert shithole. Nobody wants that. Why were the Greeks building cities there? Because it was a it was a lot more fertile and pleasant a land than it is today. That Hebrew word that, that's often translated desert doesn't necessarily mean a place of barren sand dunes. It's just a wilderness. That's all it means, the wilderness, the, the place outside of civilization because you haven't built any cities there yet. That's all it refers to. So there's a lot of misconceptions. But the Nile Delta at one time supported tremendous flocks of animals and, and herdsmen. And so did Arabia, even in the New Testament period, supported tremendous flocks and and was attractive enough for the Greeks to want to build cities there. So, yeah. in the Old Testament, in the books of the prophets, God says that he's going to make it a wasteland, that devils are going to live there, <laughs> that screech owls are going to live there. And, <laughs> and, and Basically, that those lands were all going to be cursed, and they were. 
that's why they're barren and and practically uninhabitable at, at least by our standards today that that's that these people that live there they are the devils that the god of the bible said would live there these sand niggers these arabs they're they're basically devils if we yeah. don't see that i, I mean it, it doesn't take much in in scripture to put that together so, so it doesn't take much observation to see the truth of it. Well, when I've brought it up, some people have tried to claim uh, that it was the Romans who cut down all the trees, you know, in Judea or Israel or, you know, that land in general. And that's what caused that to go barren. When they, you know, destroyed Judea, they needed massive amount of well, trees so they could um, build all their... Um, you know, fort-destroying uh, apparatus. But that wouldn't explain all the surrounding areas like Arabia, Egypt. You know, it's, it's all clearly uh, from that curse. Of course not. It, to me, it's clearly from the curse. Yes, there was a, um, a steady depopulation of timber, but that took thousands of years. That took 2,000 years, that process. We see the Phoenicians cutting down cedar trees to build ships all throughout the Old Testament period. Where'd they get those cedar trees from? If you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was probably written in um, Sumerian, maybe about 24, 2500 BC, that's probably its origin. And later it was written in and found in inscriptions in Akkadian and in the Babylonian variant of Aramaic, well, the Epic of Gilgamesh describes a huge cedar forest stretching from ancient Babylon all the way to Lebanon and the shores of the Mediterranean. It was a cedar forest. It was an incredibly lush land to grow all those cedars. That really brings ago. context of, um, you know, when Yahweh speaks to Moses and says, bringing you into the country of milk and honey. Yeah, right. Like, when you look now, you think, what? Right. This um, so in terms of all inventions being white, um, surely that would show our Adamic spirit and our ability to cooperate, you know, and work to help each other, what, which clearly the other races always struggle to do. Well, blacks in Africa typically make cakes out of captured mosquitoes. They capture <laughs> mosquitoes yeah. in a pan and form them into cakes and they fry them in the pan. And if they don't have a pan, which is often the case, they fry them on hot rocks. And that's how they, that's how they survive. That's what they subsist on. Then, so that they don't get bit by the mosquitoes, they rub urine all over their bodies because they believe that the urine acts as a mosquito repellent. That's how they live, in their natural environment. Beavers build more complex huts than <laughs> Negroes do. You can compare a beaver hut to some of the huts that these Negroes live in on the savannah in Africa, and, and the beaver hut is a superior construction. Yeah. 
And it's, um, a, a lot of people don't realize that all the other races are very little different. You know, you know, even in China and all that, before we came, they were living in similar conditions. Yes, they were. China, if it wasn't for the intervention of whites, China would still be in the Bronze Age. They had some very basic metallurgy that they probably got from ancient whites, and that was about all they ever had. And it's the same basically with Japan. Japan would be in the Iron Age if it weren't for the the in the the fact that whites went in there and industrialized Japan in the 19th century. And if you look at all of the big Japanese companies, you'll see the names of European or American companies. Um I can't think of any of the acronyms right now, but okay, JVC is a popular Japanese company. That's Japan Victor Corp. It was a subsidiary of RCA Victor. It was American companies that went in there and industrialized Japan that made Japan what it was at the end of the 19th, early 20th centuries. We did that. They didn't do that. If it weren't for our intervention, they would still be making swords and axes the old-fashioned way on an anvil and butchering one another. Yeah. We've essentially armed our own enemies, basically. Yes, absolutely. Same thing with China. China was still in the Stone Age 200 years ago. Maybe the Bronze Age. Maybe. 200 years you know, ago. Can I interject, too, is that... Um... There's never been a um, white primitive tribe. You know, we have Asian primitive tribes. You know, the Japanese have the, I think they're called the Ainu or something. Um, there's uh, ones in uh, South America, Indians that are uh, primitive, the Amazon rainforest, um, the Aborigines. But there's no uh, white primitive tribes. No, we've always developed the culture. It may have taken some generations under certain circumstances. Um, Strabo, the Scythians were nomads. Why were the Scythians nomads? Because they were the ancient Israelites who were put out of their homeland by the Assyrians and came up into Central Asia to escape their oppressors, to escape the Assyrians and the Babylonians and other tribes in Mesopotamia who were trying to oppress them. So they were nomads for six or eight centuries. They lived like the pioneers did that settled the American West until they migrated into Europe. And as soon as they settled down in Europe, in a short time, they created a great civilization. It didn't take long at all. They didn't have help from outside to do that. None. No. And, and also, we always okay, just real quick. Sorry. And we always uh, wore clothes ever since Adam. <laughs> I was and Eve, just gonna you know? say that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I mean, we always Adam wore clothes. Eve, even yeah. Adam and Eve, you know, they they were clothed, and you'd think all their descendants would keep wearing clothes. Yet all the other, you know, primitive tribes, they always walk around naked. They have no shame, basically. Well, well, there's a lot of points here that are excellent, that are pragmatic, right? I, I mean, the apostles went to Europe. Paul never wrote 
an epistle to the Hutus, to the Mandingos. He never wrote an epistle to gooks or, or to prairie niggers or anything like that. All his epistles are written to European nations or Anatolian yeah, exactly. communities, which were at that time white and Greek for the, or Celtic, the Galatahi, for the most part. They were uh, either Gauls or they were Greeks. The, or or Romans, there were pockets of Roman communities. The the um the seven churches of the Revelation are all in Europe. Why is that? They're all in Europe. They're all in Anatolia, and and Macedonia. None of the seven churches are are in Africa, or in in the Far East. It, it's ridiculous to think that. Anything to do with Christianity had to do with Africa or the Far East. Yeah. Um, so the next one, so, uh, so some people said I didn't describe it well enough or I didn't include enough verses, but to be flooded by immigrants, you know, it's in the revelation that the serpent would flood the woman. Well, um, right. That's the entire I think that's a the great proof. scenario. And it's found again in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 are a parallelism. It's the same vision told in two different ways. So they're parallel to each other. And they correspond to the camp of the saints of the scenario in, in the Revelation. So that's basically two witnesses and three, because Ezekiel's recording the same thing in two different visions. It's also mentioned in places like Jeremiah chapter 31, just before the new covenant, where Yahweh said he'd sow the house of Israel with the seed of man and the seed of beast. So we see it in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses, I think it's verses 28 and 29 or something like that. Yeah, so if you see one particular race being flooded by all other races, then that would identify Israel. Yes, absolutely. And and okay. that's also mentioned in Revelation chapter 12, where the, the serpent would go out and persecute the woman and send a flood after the woman. Well, this is the flood. Yeah. Okay, so how do you find uh, the next one? Do you find this one a bit silly? The Union Jack, could could that be the Union of Jacob? Uh, as in the British flag? You know, uh, that word Jacob comes from a French word that refers to a ham leg. Or maybe that's James. I forget. I think the word James comes from a Jacob is translated into James in English, and that comes from a ham leg, a French word for a ham leg. So I, I kind of got that confounded, but that's okay. Is that, well, well, is that no? Is that jambon or something? Jambon. Yes, jambon. That's where James comes from. Jacob yeah. is a close approximate approximation to the Hebrew form. Of the word closer than Isaac is to to Yitzhak or however you would say that Jacob come it's Yaakov or Yaakov in in Hebrew which is very close to Jacob um, is the Union Jack I, I don't really know 
why the English started using that word Jack, I, I'm going to be honest. I haven't looked into that at all. But is it the union of Jacob? I don't know, but it it is three different Christian crosses and represents the Christian tradition of the nations of Britain. So that's as far as I would go with that. Yeah, and um, would you say the British Empire was largely responsible for, um, you know, it wasn't their, their goal. It was obviously to just get rich, but in many ways it caused many of the tribes to spread out and populate all over the world. You know, it made it possible. Just about everything in history is a two-edged sword. The, the, yeah. Yes, the British Empire was driven by the Jews, the usurers in, in London. At first, they tried to use the Dutch for that purpose, and, and the Dutch had a great colonial experience going on for a little while. But for some reason, as soon as they could get into England, they switched their allegiance to London and drove the British Empire instead, and the Dutch Empire went into decline. And they did the same after the World War II. They, they had declined Britain and moved to America. Yes. They just used us and once we were obsolete just tossed us aside. Yes. And and before All white were, countries. Before they were using the um the Spanish Dutch, as well. They, at one they point. were using the Spanish and the Portuguese until the Inquisition and they had to get out. That's that yeah. that that phenomenon is explained in scripture. In Revelation chapter thirteen, it says that the dragon gives its power to the beast. And every world empire was described as a beast in scripture. The dragon, meaning the Jew, gives his power to the beast. When you see a nation rise up into an empire in history, know that the Jewish usurers are behind it. And they are greasing the wheels of that nation in order to build it up, to make it more powerful militarily, they're loaning money to the king so that they could profit off the subsequent wars. It's the same pattern in history for thousands of years now. It's never changed. The dragon, the Jew, the international Jew merchants are behind every so-called great world empire. Every one of them. They built them all up on their their usury schemes and got their kings indebted so that they basically end up in control of the empire. It's the same thing with America today. It's the same thing with England a uh, hundred, two hundred, three hundred years ago. It's it was the same thing with the, the Russian Empire, the Prussian Empire, every one of them was funded and, and greased and driven by this dragon. By these yeah. international usurers who always seek okay, control um, over the whole world. So this next one, you're probably more qualified than anyone to answer as you're, um, you can. Would you say the traditional English names that they've always been after the, you know, apostles and biblical figures often or derived from them? Uh, would you say there's a direct connection to the Greek? Greek translations of the names, sorry? Well, well in, in, in most instances, yes. I, I mean, traditional English given names have, have always been biblical. 
and and it shows the the connection of the people. Why would nations of great ability, great engineers, um, nations that have been able to make all the inventions known to man, which basically all came out of the, the Germanic and Celtic peoples, why would they adopt a foreign superstition as their religion? It makes no sense at all. And they all did it independently at different times. If it was not, if it had not belonged to them in the first place. And, and all of the nations of Europe, that the Germanic and Celtic nations of Europe, ever since the spread of the gospel, have adopted these given names as themselves, as their own. And in a lot of cases, surnames also. But that certainly does indicate to me that that was their culture to begin with. Yeah. Okay. So um, the early Europe, like Spain was called Iberia. Ireland was called Hibernia. Um, would you say that's from Eber? I know that Eber actually means the other side as well. Well, right. But yeah, you know, I, okay. The names are not directly related to the, the personal name Eber, but they but it's still come. a Hebrew word. Yeah, it's still a Hebrew word. No doubt. It's a Hebrew word. Iberia. Okay. To Herodotus writing in 450 BC, perhaps Iberia was not Iberia. It was Tardisus. Tardisus is the ancient Hebrew Tarshish. And Herodotus said that Tardesus was a noble trading town even before the time of the Trojan War. So that would have been 800 years in Herodotus's time from the time before the Trojan War to his own time would be about 750 years. So we see an independent witness in Herodotus that Tarshish or Tartessus in Greek was a popular and, and large merchant colony or trading town. And that is where the figures in scripture were sending their ships. The Hiram of Tyre and King Solomon were sending their ships to Tartessus, to Tarshish in southern Spain. So we see a Hebrew connection in trade to Tarshish, and after very not very much time, it started to be, become known as Iberia, after a Hebrew word, because not only was it the other side, which is the meaning of the name Eber, to cross over, but it was being colonized by those by those Israelites from Tyre and from Israel, and it was being turned into a Hebrew colony. That's what happened. That's why it's called that. <laughs> and and yeah. the same thing with Hibernia. Britain and Ireland, and, and when I say Britain, oftentimes in my own mind, I'm including Ireland anyway, whether the Irish like it or not, 
in um in in some of the ancient Greek writings, the, the Strabo actually um re referred to the Irish people as the Britons of Iris. He saw them as the same people, the original British, the pre-Saxon British, and the Irish. He saw as the same people. <clears throat> Whether or not that's that that's exactly accurate, of course, is always going to be argued by the Irish and the British alike, right? So <laughs> that the um, Hibernia and the term Hebrides probably also came from that same word, Eber to cross over. So we see it in Ireland, in Scotland, and in Spain and Portugal. We also see in Iberia, in the Caucasus Mountains, in Central Asia, between the Black and Caspian Seas, just north of modern Armenia, there was an Iberia because it was the other side of the mountains the other side of the pass. And Strabo and, and some of the other classical writers wrote about that land called Iberia and even did relate it to the Iberia in the West. He could have explained better, but nations of great agricultural wealth um, it's very clear in the scripture that all our ancestors were heavily into farming, you know, like Abraham was in Egypt. Uh, our ancestors were known as herders. And when they came into, you know, the land of Canaan, it's always been part of our cultures. And uh, all, all even tame an animal. I'm sorry, you're cutting out a little bit, un unless it's me that's cutting out, and I'm not picking. Yeah, up sorry, I think my connection's a little unstable. The the nation that nations, yet you know this <clears throat> this idea that the Old Testament is a Jewish book is crazy because these people <clears throat> in the Old Testament forbid usury, they forbid all sorts of immorality, and they 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 developed an agricultural nation based upon an agricultural calendar and feasts and festivals that were related to agriculture. The Feast of First Fruits, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was basically a harvest celebration. This is an agricultural calendar. It's not a Jewish calendar. If it was a Jewish calendar, it would be based on a fiscal year. <laughs> it, it's not Jewish at all. It, it's absolutely contrary from being Jewish. And yes, the children of Israel were prophesied that they were going to have great agriculture wherever they went. And only our white European race has, has basically participated and had agriculture to the, to the degree where they could live off of that alone and sustain entire nations with agriculture. The other, well, those blacks in Africa, again, they sit there and make mosquito patties and eat them. <laughs> I, I, what more can I say? And how about the, you know, the Sabbath and the seven-day week? Sorry, can you hear me? 
the the seven day week was adopted by the by the Greeks early in the Christian era, and and it was adopted because of the Christians. The Christians in Greece became predominant. So they that but before that, Europeans did not have a seven day week. The Romans right. had a really weird calendar that broke the month up into several parts. The middle days of which were called the Ides, which is why we had that phrase Ides of March, when um Julius Caesar was killed, I believe. But but I forget the Roman calendar because it's so convoluted that I can't remember it because I don't really need to, I guess. Um, it, it broke the month up into periods of 10 days or 15 days or three days at the front and the back. And it had designated um, holy days at certain times of the month that were determined by the pagan priests in in the temples in Rome. So it was a very complicated calendar, but it was not based on a seven-day week ever. That came along when the Greeks adopted the seven-day week based on the demands of Christians and the, and the traditions of the Christians of Greece. Yeah, but there was definitely no seven-day week in China or Africa, and the Jews would certainly open business on a Sunday or whatever Sabbath day. Whether well, day you want correct. to say Sabbath. That is correct. Okay. Um, so in terms of Noah's son's appearance, Noah's son, sorry, their descendants, uh, I believe you already covered that in your Bible podcast, but it's very clear JPEF was why all the Europeans, um, a lot of the Shemites you can prove with the Persians and other ones. But um, the Ham, Ham's one I had slight difficulty um, the only ones that are concrete proof would be the Egyptians. The other ones, it's a bit obscure, isn't it? Like the Philistines. Well, it's, all, it's only obscure because even people in Christian identity very little understand that the first Adamic Mesopotamian Empire was the Empire of Nimrod, and that was the land of Cush at the time of Moses. It was not in Africa. The empire of Nimrod. Nimrod was the son of Cush. And the beginning of his empire is described in Genesis chapter 10. And it's in Mesopotamia. It, it's, um, let, let me read it in a second. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Shinar is a, a, um, an ancient term for the southern part of Mesopotamia. And Akkad later became the capital of Assyria. Erech what was a um, famous ancient city. And Babel was where the entire race of Genesis 10 started out before, before God divided the languages and scattered them. So Mesopotamia in ancient times was always white, and that is the empire of Cush. So if he was white, and if the Egyptians were white, 
then Ham must have been white. The Hittites are considered by anthropologists to be Indo-European. The Hittites were Canaanites of the tribe of Heth in Genesis chapter 10. So that's another group of Hamites that were obviously white. Even if the biblical position is that they are accursed, they're still white. They were still white. There weren't yeah. any blacks running around Mesopotamia in 2000 BC. There's no archaeological evidence of that at all. The ancient Greeks described an Ethiopia of the East as well as an Ethiopia below Egypt. And they're connected because the Ethiopia of the East was the empire of Nimrod, the land of Cush. And if you look at the map, you'll see that it's a very short distance by sea from Babylonia to the Horn of Africa. And it's quite obvious that the Ethiopia that once encompassed the Horn of Africa was settled from Babylonia by sea. Yeah. It was overrun with blacks in the 8th century BC, just like Egypt was overrun with Nubians at that same time or just after. So one proof that I always get people argue with uh, is that Revelation 1,000-year reign. They absolutely refuse to believe that it happened in Europe, you know, with uh, us accepting Christianity and for a while, you know, basically living as Christians with Jews, you know, excluded in the ghetto. Well, yeah, you know, that's it's it's difficult to prove anything in prophecy unless you start at the beginning. And my book, my Revelation co commentary, Christ Strike, you really have to start at the beginning and follow the whole thing to understand the fulfillments of the prophecies in the end. That's just the way it is. But there's one line in that prophecy in the Revelation that makes its interpretation, a correct interpretation, impossible. And that's the line in Revelation chapter 20 in verse 5, I believe it is. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. That sentence first appears in the 5th century in the Codex Alexandrinus. Now, I had faulty information when I wrote Christreich, because at that time, I believed that that sentence did not appear until the 9th century. And that was an honest assessment of plain facts as they are stated in the Nestle A-Land Novum Testamentum Grece, or Greek New Testament, 27th edition. Okay? Now, the 27th edition leads one to believe that that line appeared in the 9th century in a commentary by Andreas of Caesarea. Now, that's not true. In the 28th edition, that's corrected. But when I wrote Christreich, the 28th edition wasn't yet published. When I <clears throat> obtained a copy of the 28th edition about two years ago, 
I noticed that the line, <clears throat> that they were saying that the line did appear in the Codex Alexandrinus. So I went online, you could see photographic images, high resolution images of the Codex Alexandrinus online. And I checked it for myself and the line does appear in the Codex Alexandrinus. But it still doesn't appear in the older witnesses of the text of the Revelation. So that sentence, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. It's not in the Codex Sinaiticus or other older copies of the Revelation. It evidently did not belong to the original text. And when you remove it, you get a whole different impression of, of this, this prophecy in scripture. So, yeah, and I've noticed um, online in some of the translations, it's even in brackets where they've realized that. Yeah, they realize that. They realize it's spurious, but they leave it in the brackets because it's part of, quote unquote, church tradition. But it's, it needs to be removed in order to understand the prophecy. Yeah. And um, with, you know, Napoleon um, bringing the Jews back, it, he actually almost had a world empire at that point. So it would have affected a lot of Europe. Uh, obviously, he lost, but it would have had great implications in what he did. Oh, the, Napoleon's emancipation of the Jews for over for just over a thousand years. The Jews were kept in bondage. They were chattel property of the kings. The Jews were property of the king wherever they dwelt in Europe. They couldn't hold um, that they couldn't hold political office. They had no political power at all. That that of course they had a lot of background power by bribing and and indebting officials. But they had no rights of citizenship. That they that the Byzantine Greek emperors forbid them from owning Christian slaves or from loaning money to Christians at usury that they were really um, second-class citizens. They were really limited in anything they could do, and they were forced to live in these ghettos, which weren't really like nigger ghettos, but they were separate areas where the Jews were, were compelled to live apart from Christians. So they didn't have easy access to Christians in order to corrupt them like they do today. So... Satan was actually allegorically bound in this pit of, of these ghettos in Europe and had no power over the society unless a nobleman became corrupted and, and caved into their wishes, which did happen from time to time. I mean, the National Socialist film Der Jude is all about that, right? The Eternal Jew is all about that. So... When they were emancipated, they were basically let out of that pit. And Napoleon did that. He is entirely responsible for that. The Jews had been agitating for it for years, and nobody would do it. Napoleon did it. He emancipated the Jews. And Napoleon spread that emancipation throughout all the lands in Europe that he tried to conquer and include in his empire. So the Jews became emancipated in Poland, in parts of Germany, 
at just after they were emancipated in France. And it wasn't that, long that, before they were emancipated everywhere. That brings us back to the dragon powers the beast. He, he needed the money and the support for his empire. So well, he caved. He gave way. I'm sure. But there, there's also, you know, Napoleon also had a war with the bankers in the background that not too many people know about. There was, I, I don't, I'm not an expert on the topic, so I really don't like to talk about it, but there was an excellent Barnes Review article on that very thing, maybe about 10 years ago, and I'll probably try to um, find it for you and and stick it in the forum in a private message or something, if, if you're interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. But, but they always scrub those bits out of history. Uh, it wasn't it the same in Rome. It's always just Caesar versus Pompey. They never mention the bankers or anything like that. It's always erased. Well, right, but they've also um, idolized Caesar, and he was the criminal. Julius Caesar was a criminal. He was subverting yeah. the Republic of Rome. Brutus was the good guy. He was the hero. He was for the people. <laughs> what Caesar was doing was evil. He usurped yeah. the Republic under his own control. He usurped the power that belonged to the Senate and the people of Rome. Caesar usurped that for himself. That's why he was killed. Brutus was the hero. But history, the way the Jews teach it, tell the opposite of the truth. Yeah. Okay. Um, what can what I, are your can thoughts? Can I ask on... one real quick? Um, oh, sure, sure, sorry. Just just because we're talking about the um, prophecies, you know, the revelations and stuff. I I see people mention, um, you know, like on old documents or um, things like that, where it has um, a year and it'll have an I or a J instead of a one. So that people are some people are thinking that um, they added a thousand years to our history. Do you think the J is just for um, Jesus Christ and the I for uh, in the year of our Lord or something like that? Is that why it's used, the I or the J? I, I'm sorry. I, I, I've heard some crazy conspiracies about chronology that, well, yeah, I've heard that. But I don't believe them. And and. It's not that I don't believe him because I don't want to. I don't believe him because I've actually read a lot of books. Um, but I don't know what you're referring to. Just like uh, you'll see um, some dates like stamped on a, a building uh, in the masonry, you know, different places and uh, paintings or just whenever um, they put the year, um, they'll put like, you know, so just say like 1863, the the one instead of a one, it looks like an I or it looks like a J. Have you ever seen that? No, I've never noticed it. Oh, okay. Because yeah, how there's does some that change history. Pardon? How does that change history? Well, so then, so then the those people are saying that it's not. Um, it's not actually a one. So like, say if it was 1863, they would say that the date is really 863. Like they added a thousand years onto our history. And then they're saying that they think um, they added it during the dark ages. That's just crazy. 
I swear okay. that's not. Just why I throw that out there because there there are some um, people like on YouTube uh, talking about that. So, wow. all right. Yeah, because um, all of our countries, we've got at least two thousand years of history. You know, to to just add in a thousand years, just like that, it would I be impossible. It, yeah, and it would throw off um, all the prophecy. You know, things that have come true. Right, it would throw it off. If it was, if you add a thousand years or you um, take away a thousand years, basically is what they would be well, saying. Well, right? I mean, the Jews took away 1300 years in the, in the Old Testament. If you compare the Septuagint with the Masoretic text, the Masoretic text is missing about 1300 years. They shortened all the times, all the ages of the patriarchs and stuff and, and, and screwed with the calendar. They screwed with the, the perception of Old Testament history. Modern Christians think that Adam was created in 4000 BC. But the Septuagint dating puts Adam before 5400 BC. The flood yeah. date's affected by 900 years because of that. From 2345 BC in the Masoretic text under Usher's chronology to 3245 BC if we apply Usher's chronology to the Septuagint. That's serious. The Jews did that. They sucked a thousand years out of biblical history. 1300. <laughs> yes, they did. Was that to try and prove that Christ couldn't be Christ because he came at the wrong time? Well, that's what early Christians thought they did it for. Yeah. But the truth is, the only thing that actually dates the time when Christ would come is Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. That's the only thing in scripture that actually explicitly dates it. And I could prove that Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy was accurate within a year. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Rosette, if you really read um, ancient sources and actual medieval sources, and if you read enough of them, you'll understand that this writer, um, that this are like Herodotus made some claims about the timing of certain events and when they happened. But then you, when you read Thucydides, who was maybe three or four decades after Herodotus, he substantiates a lot of it. He might correct it. He might even conflict in a place or two, but he basically substantiates the chronology of Herodotus. And then you read Xenophon 40 years later, and Xenophon's writing about and, and things that Thucydides wrote about, and he's substantiating it. And, and you could start to form a chronology of ancient events in your mind. And, and then you go to the next author and the next one and the next one. You get to like Procopius, 600 AD, and you see the world that he describes. I'm sorry, about 530 AD. And you see the world that he describes. And he is... Um, substantiating the historical timeline down to his own time in his historical writings. You, you could really put together a narrative and understanding of the chronology of history. And then when somebody comes along and says, oh, that somebody added a thousand years to the calendar, you look at them and scratch your head and like, I'll bet you've never read a book. 
<laughs> Definitely. That, that's why it's so important to um, learn our ancient history along with the Bible. Not, not just go by the Bible, but uh, have the ancient history with it because it grounds us you know, with the timeline and stuff like that, like you're saying, because right. a lot of us, yeah, we don't learn it in school, you know, in, in our American schools. I mean, you know, what, what do we get really of ancient history? We get like the U S history, but you know, so we get black history now. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. We get black history month, but yeah, we don't, we don't really get all the, um, the ancient history. So, you know, we're not grounded. Like, we, so it's hard to figure things out without that background knowledge, which you have. Well, so I'll tell really you why great. there's no white history month, right? There's a good reason. It's a good reason. There's no white history month because all black history can be told in one month. <laughs> Maybe in a day. Can't do that with white history. Yeah. Okay. That was my attempt at a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like your joke about um, fiscal year would be the Jews calendar yeah. would be a fiscal calendar. That was pretty good. And what did you always say? If they, if the Jews were, if the Israelites were Jews, they would have invaded Canaan with briefcases and pencils. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Rather than pitchforks and axes. <laughs> So, so what are your thoughts on um, tribe symbols being on, you know, European flags and, and coat of arms and, and all things like that, even like counties and boroughs, you know, you see it just everywhere. If you look at the, um, you, you'd, you'd think my, that the first Finks were, were Masons. Well, maybe they were. If you look at the Fink family arms, um, you'll see two moons, two half moons, two crescent moons, and you'll wonder what the hell. What? Well, that was actually, and and it's more ornate than that. There's a lot more to it than that. But that was actually because that coat of arms was developed during the Crusades as a sign of of their victory in the Crusades. So. A lot of those coats of arms didn't come into being until medieval times. Their use of biblical symbols, like um, that the Irish have always used that um, the Harp of David and things like that, and, and the Scottish Red Hand or whatever, their use of these biblical symbols um, has some significance to show our biblical heritage, but I can't, because most of those shields and coats of arms and symbols were adopted in the medieval period, I can't say that any of it's actually connected to particular Israelite tribes. I just won't. Okay. That's my and pragmatism. That I, I I gotta be that way because I have to be able to. It, it's it's my opinion that everything I write should be unshakable. That that it's based on definite historic fact, or I'm not going to write it. I might believe it, but I'm not going to write it because I can't prove it. 
Hey, can we go um, back? Uh, I saw Dan, uh, a Viper's Trail, or it must be or a tail probably. On the, but I want to ask about Dan real quick because you know how um, Dan's left out of the 144,000? What, what do you think is the reason they're left out, Bill? That's in the Revelation. Yeah. Well, that Revelation is Revelation chapter 7. And it's in between these chapters which are speaking of the destruction to come upon the Roman Empire. So it has to be viewed in that, in the, um, within the historical context that the prophecy projects in Revelation chapter 6 and 8 which are talking about the destruction of Rome. And it's pretty clear that they're talking about the destruction of the Roman Empire. In fact, even Irenaeus understood that. In the second century AD, he wrote that, that the revelation was, was predicting the fall of the Roman Empire. So, that is the context of Revelation chapter 7, that God would use these angels to hold up the destruction of Rome until these tribes were sealed. And it it's apparent to me that at least a, a significant portion of the tribe of Dan was not within the bounds of the Roman Empire, which suffered this calamity at this time. And that's why perhaps Dan is not mentioned. They're already in Northern Europe. They're outside of the um, Italy and the Greek world and where this destruction is going to happen. And they're not among the hordes of German tribes that brought this destruction upon Rome. That's my opinion. Do you have any opinion on the prophecy that Dan will judge his people? Well, well, I know how British Israel interprets it because I read their material and I know just about all their positions, but I don't repeat them because, not because I don't necessarily agree with them, sometimes I do, but because I can't prove them. Sorry, what was the British Israel position? Oh, that... Was that, that, that they would be, become police and judges or something yeah, like that? Yeah, right. And, and I just don't see too many Danes doing that today. <laughs> unless you're in Denmark, but they, even there, the judges are probably Jews and the cops are probably Muslims. Just saying. Right. Okay. And um, with, with the um, David's king, David's uh, throne would be overturned three times. Uh, if you interpret that way, I believe it's in Ezekiel. Do you think that fits the, the, you know, stone of destiny, the, you know, the, the stone that Jacob slept on being brought, uh, into Ireland and Scotland and England. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that. Yeah, you know, I've always been intrigued by the Leothal or the Stone of Destiny. It, it's um... Tia Tefi, I believe it was, or uh, Tara, Queen Tara. 
Okay, the Book of Tethy and Tia Tethy is a romantic poem written by British Israel adherents in the 19th century. It is not a legitimate book of antiquity. It, it's it's the figment of 19th century British Israel imagination. So it should probably be dismissed. And and okay. that's the book from where we get the name Tea Tefi. Now, when I was doing most of my studying, I had a dearth of Irish literature. I couldn't get my hands on hardly anything that was actually um, of any great antiquity as far as Irish and, and even British literature. I could get plenty of Greco-Roman stuff. I read all the Greek histories and poets and Roman histories and poets, but the Irish literature was unattainable to me. So I never really had the opportunity to study it. Now I do have the books of the five masters or four masters and, and other works of late medieval Irish history right here on my shelf, but I still haven't had a chance to read them. So I'm kind of guilty of that, of having some holes in my knowledge of ancient Ireland, even though I do understand what the Book of Invasion says and things like that, and, and the Firbolgs and the Malaysians and the Tuatha de Danon and things like that. But I'm not sure exactly how old the Alam Fadla story is or what its provenance is. And I believe Tia Tefi might be mentioned by that name in that story, but I haven't had the chance to examine it for myself. So I really can't offer an educated opinion. Okay. And, and what's your thoughts on, you know, Brutus, uh, you know, the story that he came to England and founded you know, the Brightons who became the Welsh, uh, well, because I read a book, um, I forgot the name, Geoffrey Mormouth, I believe it was. But just, just speaking of that, it's interesting that even in that, they mentioned that 500 BC, a group of um, people came from Spain and they settled in Ireland, which would kind of tie up with just what I mentioned that, you know, uh, Queen Tara came over. Well, actually, the Irish kings, as far as I've read, and I have read this, the Irish kings were always from the tribes of the tribe of the Milids or the Malaysians. The Malaysians were from Miletus in ancient Anatolia. Miletus was in the southwest corner of Anatolia, where Troy was in the northwest corner. So we have... Um, what we have these Malaysians had supplied the Irish kings for a long time. And I think that they were the they were perceived as the only legitimate kings. I'm not entirely sure of that. But if you weren't a Malaysian, you weren't considered to be a legitimate king of Ireland. That's what I think I've read a long time ago. I haven't thoroughly researched it, however. That the um Queen Tia. You know, I do believe that Jeremiah took the prince's daughters, the king, the king's daughters. I believe it was um Zedekiah. Is it Zedekiah's daughters, right? Out of Egypt. 
and escaped Egypt. Did he go to Ireland? I believe that's very possible. Can I prove it? No, because I don't have a good enough grip on that ancient Irish literature that I would need in order to establish it. Now, I don't believe everything that British Israel people wrote because they wrote a lot of fantastic tales like Drama of the Lost Disciples and passed it off as Christian history. And I've actually caught them in many more mistakes than that. So that's why you don't see that information on my website at Christagenia. Because I haven't studied it yet, I can't prove it with any degree of, of authentic citations in literature, so I leave it alone. Okay. Um, in terms of um, Gentiles, do you believe that originally, uh, I've, I've read a lot of literature that says that originally it came from Gentilis, which meant from the same clan, uh, like the original meaning. So that, that would imply that originally, you know, Gentiles meant people of the same race as, you know, the uh, implying that the Israelites were white. People understood that. But later it got changed to mean non-Jew. Well, well, that's very interesting, right? Because Gentilis does mean somebody of the same race or clan in, in, in Latin. And Clifton actually found that in um, American Latin dictionaries. And I actually have one of those dictionaries here now. And it's somewhere on these bookshelves. And I've seen the citation myself. It's on Clifton's website the actual citation, which dictionary it came from, what page number, the whole thing. Well, a gens is a family, and somebody that's gentilis is of the same gens, or family, or race. That's the word that we get generation from, and, and other English words. And it came from the, the um, similar Greek word genos, which means a family, or a clan or a race so gentilis i i don't really i i mean i read some latin but not enough to actually go study latin manuscripts there are latin manuscripts that are copies of the septuagint that predate jerome and there are latin manuscripts that are copies of new testament books that predate jerome but Jerome sat in the very beginning of the 5th century, I believe, and translated the scriptures from Hebrew, allegedly, into Latin in Egypt, in Alexandria, and created the Latin Vulgate. So he must have made a conscious choice to take that word goy for nation in, in Hebrew and translate it into gentilis in Latin when there were other Latin words that could be used to describe a nation. Jerome made a conscious decision to use that word gentilis, which doesn't really merely refer to other nations. It refers to people of the same general race, family, or clan. Jerome said that. I didn't. So 
Why did he use that term when he could have used other terms to describe yeah, nations? Yeah, that's fascinating. That's the way I look at that. I can't get into Jerome's head to 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 ask him why he did that, to find that answer. But he used that term. So, Bill, is that where we get the word gentleman from? That's basically where we get the idea of gentle from, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's because that even that, that Latin word that we get human from, humanus, mm -hmm. means to be humane. Right. In, in Theodorus Siculus wrote of blacks in, in the first century that BC that they were anything but human. <laughs> and that's what the word human means. It means to be humane. That that's why yeah. we have the word humane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so humane has got nothing to do with the color of man, the hue. No, it means human has nothing to do with hued man. That is another identity fable that we need to get rid of. It's it's ridiculous. Right. The word human comes from the Latin word humanus. Right. Let's see what humanus means in Charlton T. Lewis and Charles Short's Latin Dictionary. Of or belonging to man, human. Isn't it kindness, compassion, that type of thing? Humane, philanthropic, kind, gentle, obliging, polite. And it was used to refer to, to describe man. But that was because... That was the qualities that the Romans expected of a man. Of good education, well-informed, learned, polite, refined. Not so like humane, today. <laughs> the concept of humane and human were directly related by the Romans in their Latin language. And we've carried that over into English, except for some reason, like you just implied, the connection <laughs> has been forgotten. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, I just put it there. On, on you go, truth. No, that's fine. So, Bill, what are your thoughts on um, the meaning of Britain? I, I've heard two like two different theories, one Brythane, meaning uh, land of the covenant, and some people say it was named after Brutus, like land of Brutus or Britus. Well, if indeed, and I can't prove this, if indeed we, we do know that there were Christians, British Christians in the first century, If indeed they had already accepted Christianity when they started to use the term Britain, I might be able to accept that, but I'm not sure if that's true. So I don't repeat it. 
the um I'm trying to recall the the word that the Greeks used for Britain, and I'm was sure it, it Albion? I'm sure it wasn't Britain. There were actually several words that they used, but it's not coming to my mind right now. And I thought I, they named it after the white shores. Well, like, Albion white... Albion was one term, but I don't know if that was the the most common. I can't remember. Albion is the term that Strabo used. And it's the term that Theodore Siculus used. I don't know when the term Britain actually started to be used. I can't remember. I'd have to research that. But if it if it started to be used after the first century and by Christians, then I would believe the connection. The connection is plausible, but I haven't done enough research on it to actually um be sure of it for myself i honestly haven't but the story of brutus i can talk about the story of brutus has no authority older than virgil and virgil was an apologist for julius caesar and julius caesar wanted to conquer britain he invaded britain twice and twice he was repelled and a lot of Virgil's writing gave excuses or authority based on pseudo-history to the actions of Rome and specifically to the actions of Julius Caesar. Virgil, I believe, created the story of Brutus in order to make legitimate to give ground to Julius Caesar's desire to rule over Britain. That's my opinion. It doesn't exist in any writer before Virgil that I've seen. There's no authority for it before Virgil. Therefore, I believe Virgil invented the tale for political purposes to legitimize Julius Caesar's invasions of Britain. That's my opinion. Okay. Virgil, I, I can prove, was guilty of other historical anachronisms that he used to justify the actions of Rome against the Phoenicians of Carthage. He invented a romance between Aeneas, who I believe was a true historical figure, and Dido, the queen of Carthage, who was also a true historical figure, he created a romance between them and made it seem as though Dido was jilted by Aeneas. And the truth is that Aeneas and Dido lived 400 years apart. They could never have known one another. Not in this world. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Bill, are you still going to redo your Revelation series? Uh, I believe I heard you mention it, that after John, or, yes, or perhaps I, after his epistles. To, um, I'm going to, to do my commentary on John's epistles first, because I've never really done them properly, 
and and then I hope to rewrite Christrike. I does, do does that mean there's a lot of new information or things that you feel you've missed? No, what what I feel I've missed, I, I think I could do a better job at writing it today than I did ten years ago when I wrote it, or maybe it was nine years ago. But I I'm probably not going to change any of my interpretation of the prophecy. I don't anticipate changing any of that. I do have some new information to substantiate further some of the things I've said, but I really need to make it more explanatory. And I need to add chapters to the book that explain the relationship and, and the correspondences between the Revelation and Daniel and the Revelation and Ezekiel and the Revelation and Zechariah. So the okay. next version will probably be at least 50% fatter. <laughs> Okay. That there are some things I don't think I explained um, sufficiently that I could rewrite and explain better. I think. So we'll see how it goes. I take it one week at a time. Yeah. How well did the um, book sell, by the way? Just whilst we're on the topic, I was just wondering: did the most people just read it on the website, or did they listen to the podcast, or, or have, have the books been doing very well? I probably, I, I don't know. Some months I sell 100 books and some months I sell 10. Uh, it's hard to tell. <laughs> Lulu, I sold my books. The, the Christogeny New Testament and Christrike were sold through Lulu until 2018, 2017, Charlottesville. Lulu canceled my account right after Charlottesville. I don't even know if that was connected but I doubt it because Christagenia didn't get any um, publicity from Charlottesville, except an obscure mention in one ADL article. So I didn't go to Charlottesville as Christagenia. I went as a member of the League of the South, right? So, so um, <clears throat> immediately, after, immediately after Charlottesville, my Lulu account was just canceled and shut down and closed. And I hadn't checked my sales statistics in a long time. So I have no idea how many books I sold through Lulu. It was probably in the neighborhood of 5,000, maybe even more, but I have no idea how many of each book sold. So yeah. all, all the statistics were lost when they suddenly, without warning, shut my account down. Or I would have went and, and probably tried to retrieve them. So I've had about, since I started selling my own books, which is only two years now, I've probably had about eight or 900 book orders. Okay. For anywhere from one to 20 books. And I don't get too many orders for 20, but I get some. Yeah. No, so I was mostly just wondering if it'd be worth putting 100 proofs into a book form. Um, obviously, you know, after speaking to you, I think there's a lot of improvements I need to make first, but well, it's just have... interesting. You, you've sold a lot of, but I didn't realize it had done that well. I thought I... you was going to say like just a hundred or something. Oh no, no. I've sold, um, 
probably since I started selling my own books, probably about 1200, I'm guessing. Yeah. I bought your books. Thank you. <laughs> it's I'll great having it in, in book formats. Great. I'll never support myself selling books. I don't know how guys do it. It, it. I'd need 50 titles and I don't have time. I probably have material for 50 books, but I don't have time to put them all in books. Yeah. But when you make them available, they're, um, they're print on demand, right? It's not like you have to have them sitting on your shelf or something. Right? No, I got a room out back with about a thousand books in it right now. Maybe. Oh, you do. Maybe oh, because everyone should get your books because you know we don't know if the internet eventually will crash. People won't have access to your work. You know, the best way is to actually get your books. Well, I and haven't then found. We have those on hand. I haven't found another print-on-demand place, and and I thought it would be risky to use another like company storefront like Lulu. Even though Lulu was really convenient for me, um, it's not worth going to Amazon. I tried it. I'll never sell books on Amazon again because Amazon wants all your money and you get hardly anything. I don't know how people sell books on Amazon. I, I don't get it. Well, the, um, the company I use, it's completely safe for me because their name is never publicly connected to Christagenia, they're never going to turn me down. So that they like selling books and printing them, right? So I order my books 200 at a time. I order 200 books. I pay for them up front and hope that I sell them to get my money back. Yeah. Well, well, I thought your, your book service is exactly that. I bought your New Testament a few months ago. Obviously, I'm in Scotland and it arrived within four or five days well i appreciate that i, I um <laughs> my wife fills my book orders right yeah okay they're not filled as frequently as they used to be because since the hurricane we live 45 minutes from the post office so if i only have one or two orders in the queue i don't even let her go because it's not worth it Would you ever do a book, a compilation of um, like a lot of your essays, like the the tri Germanic tribe migrations, um, Roman, Trojan, Zara, you know, all those type of ones just compiled into like a book of essays? I've actually had that on a back burner for a long time. I want to, <laughs> okay. I want to do a book on the protocols. I want to put my protocols material into a book. It'll never fit in one, though. I'm afraid my John commentary, it's never going to fit into one book. It's already well over 500 pages. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great, though, if you could put them in books, you know, well, because then we have them. And, you know, if the Internet crashes, we have access to the material. Yeah, I'm hoping to someday get it all in books. But it's just very time consuming when you're constantly producing new material to sit and take your old material and format it into a book. I, I'm hoping yeah. to put out Zechariah. Hmm, I was hoping to do it by the end of the year, but it looks like January. Um, Hebrews. Hebrews is next. Right. Is is Dennis there? I was going to ask Dennis if he's ever considered um, releasing any books. 
I don't know if it would fit like greatest story never told in book form. I don't know if that would work. Yeah, that's problematical too. <laughs> yeah. I think Dennis took a break. Dennis? Yeah. I wanted to ask Dennis, you know, how his views have changed uh, over the past few years, you know, especially interacting with Sven, who I believe is, you know, fully CI and, you know, you and, you know, other people, if his views have gradually changed. Maybe he's away. I think he stepped out. He must have. Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably put him to sleep. I'm sorry. <laughs> He'd probably be but, more um, interesting to hear than me. But Bill, what do you find um, generally the most effective, uh, like in in spreading CI? How do you get like most people um, like contacting you? It, do, do you think your website, um, the forums, the podcasts, the books, or or, or do you get um, you know a lot more when you're out and about, like speaking to people or League of the South, or is it just a combination of everything? Well, well, the big Google search. I, I get most of my yeah. web traffic from Google search. I get. Um, according to Cloudflare, Christogeny gets about 110,000 unique visitors a month on average. And about 30 to 40% of that comes from Google search engine. Yeah, at least for now. Yeah, well, I, I mean, they do suppress Christogenia in search engines for anything, any search that has to do with Christian identity. Um, on page 10, page 15, but for a lot of other things, I'm right at the top of the list. So it, it's, they, it's a mixed bag, but I, I get, yeah, they tend to push their own people to the top. I'll look at the first few days of December just because I kind of have that, I have that handy. Acquisition overview. This is the last six days, including today. 59% of my traffic came from organic search. 22% from direct links, 11% from referrals, and only 7% from social media. Well, that shows you people are searching for the truth, definitely if uh, Google search is the prime source. Yeah, Google does not tell me the keywords that people find my site on. I have to go into my server for that, for that information. Google what, what are the keywords then? It's, it's always says not provided because Google won't provide most of the keywords. I've tested this myself. If, if you look up Jewish ritual murder and find my site, the Google Analytics program will tell me that the keyword is not provided. <laughs> and and a lot of other related topics, it'll say not provided, not provided, not provided. So I never know. Google won't provide it to me. Yeah. So I have to go, I could go to my server and actually look at my traffic reports on my server to find a lot of keywords, how they're finding my website. But Alexa is Alexa is a total lie. 
it's incredible. I've had the, the three, three out of the last four months have been the biggest months I've ever had for web traffic, according to Google Analytics and according to my DNS provider, Cloudflare. But my Alexa ranking went from the top 200,000 to down around seven or 800,000. Alexa's just lying about my traffic. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, They're trying to suppress you. I should be in the top 100,000 websites with the traffic I'm getting. I'm sure. I've been doing this long enough. I, I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it. But Alexa has me like 700,000 and something, and it's a straight lie. And similar web, another website ranking company, actually has me getting less visits than Cloudflare says I have unique visitors. So they're lying too. They're, they're basically pencil screwing me. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. I don't take advertising, so it's not going to affect my income. That's all I can say. So, Bill, have you heard of the uh, apparently in three days they're going to do a massive purge on YouTube? Uh, I don't. I don't know if you heard, but the tenth of December. Um, yeah, you know that, that's, you... that's why I put twelve hundred bucks a month into Christagenia, into my own infrastructure. I got yeah. five dedicated servers, a whole bunch of cloud servers, and it's costly and it hurts sometimes. But I have to do it if I'm going to stay online at all. That's why I've never used YouTube. I have two YouTube channels. I got like six or seven videos on them, and I expect them to shut those down. They don't get any views. A couple of hundred. I got like 300 followers on YouTube. The account's like 10 years old. I mean, come on. I'm not putting any <laughs> time into it, so I don't have any results from it. And and that's because first, a friend, a couple of friends of mine sat last year in the voice chat server at Christagenia, and we kept clicking on my videos, and the counters were not incrementing. And guys were using Tor, Tor browser and things like that, proxies to click on my videos. And I could download any YouTube video from the command line on any one of my servers. And YouTube won't know it's me doing it. And the counters were not incrementing on my videos. I'm sure they're doing that to a lot of people. Oh yeah, absolutely. They they always um, lock videos and suppress them. If I really and not only that, you're guilty of uh, pre-crime because we can't even do live chats with you on there. Yeah, if I really put any yeah. videos on my YouTube channel, I'm sure it would be shut right down. I'm sure it would because they don't they won't uh, let us do a live chat with you on there. So, you, Dennis, or Sven anymore. They won't. Christagenia is my, my YouTube. I mean, my media site is my YouTube. That's the best I could do. Yeah. I don't, yeah, you know, Rosette spends a lot of time putting images to, to videos, and she does really good at it. I, I really love the Bible Basics series stuff she did, but I don't have time for that. That takes hours to do a video. It does. <laughs> It takes me a long time, but at least I got it up on BitChute. Oh, you know what? There's a site. It's called uh, library.com, just spelled L-B-R-Y.com, and that's a good place to archive 
uh, videos and stuff just to let everybody know. That's an, another place we can if we get wiped out everywhere else. Well, I will just be online. You guys know. They will not take me offline. It may not even be under Christiania, but I will be online. If they take down my website, I'll show up under 50 friggin' websites, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And they try once in a while. Well, um, truth fits. Did you have any more um, yeah, that yeah, you wanted to go I had, over with Bill? Because I, I know he's he's can't stay with us too much longer. Yeah, of course, I got more. I, I, I was just conscious of yeah. time. I thought Bill might have to go. Yeah, I really do. I'm really over my time. Like that's fine. That's fine. And I have company downstairs, right? They're fishing on my. <laughs> They're waiting for you. Waiting They're for the host. Fishing in my backyard in in the canal behind my house and waiting for me. <laughs> Thank you for having All me. Right. And, and we'll probably do this again soon. Um, I, I mean, we hardly got through this list. We, we had so many digressions. Yeah, maybe we can do a, um, another one in the future, uh, going through any other ones we want to talk about um, on these 100 proofs and uh, any questions, scraggler questions on the Bible basics. We could do Wonderful. another time. Okay, great. If Thank you're available. You. It's been a pleasure. All righty. Well, thank you, Bill, for coming on. Thank you, Dennis. And um, of course, you know, Scotland, Sean, Truth Bids. It's been a great chat. No worries. Yeah, thank thanks, you, Yahweh. Praise Christ. Yes. Take care. Take care. Take care.